Today I plan to kick off the last chapter of the book of Hebrews. We've been in this uh, book of the New Testament, this letter, for a number of months, well over a year now, and I'm very much looking forward to you seeing the conclusion. And that's what this really is. In fact, as he begins the first verse of this chapter, you can already sense there's a slightly different kind of language being used. He's about to give us a bunch of single-sentence, short, pithy instructions. In fact, in these six verses, the six instructions that he gives us that we're going to cover today almost feel like they don't necessarily match up. They're just kind of could almost feel random if we weren't careful. So what I'd like to do this morning is to just read through the six verses all in one chunk, pray, and then go back through uh, one verse at a time. And we're going to look at each of these pieces in turn and then consider why they are being listed all together. I think that will be what will be most helpful for us today. So let's read through the text, those six verses, and then pray. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this entire letter that's been well-serving. I pray that we'd understand the things that are written here. I pray that as I preach on these topics, Lord, that you would do a work in your, with your spirit, send him to engage the hearts who will hear this, that we may do the things you're instructing for us to do. Lord, guard us against the errors of legalism on one hand and libertinism on the other. That is, Lord, help us to not think that we, on our own efforts, can please you and work our way closer to you by the things that we do or the things we abstain from. And Father, on the other side, I pray that we would acknowledge that we do need to obey the commands you've given to us in the Bible. We need your help to find that balance and to obey your word fully. So Lord, help us to do that today as we consider these things. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. I'll go back to verse one of this chapter and begin right out of the gates with this clear clarion call. Let brotherly love continue. It's a nice short single verse. If you need to memorize a verse this week, this could be one. Done. Memorized, right? Not too hard. Let brotherly love continue. I don't think this is a singular command. It serves as the intro to the rest of this section we're about to get into here. But up to this point in the letter, there's not been much specific instruction on how we as believers should relate to one another. If you've ever studied just Bible passages and done this on your own in a coffee shop or in a group with people, you might know there's a difference between imperatives, that is, specific instructions, and indicatives. That's just the matter-of-fact statements, things that are true. One is telling us to do something. 
The other is making sure we understand something. So far, up until this point in the book of Hebrews, the overwhelming majority of the text has not been telling us what to do, but how to think. Now at this point in the book, though, the author puts his attention into a lot of very specific instructions. Go and do these things. Specifically, there has not been much instruction yet given on how we as believers should relate to one another, as he's about to turn his attention to now. He has been spending much of his time instructing us how to think about Jesus, how to think about our membership in the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant. He's been encouraging us to remain faithful and endure to the end, no matter what the circumstances, at all costs. So before we unpack this section, I want you to consider something. 13 chapters in, and this really is, with a very few exceptions, the first prolonged section in the entire book that deals with interpersonal relationships. Here's where I want to say this. Because if you were to be here with us for the very first time, and maybe you are, maybe it's somebody listening in and they're just checking out Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 6 today, you might get the impression that the book of Hebrews is this whole book that teaches us how to relate to other people. And that's not true. That's not what the whole book has been up until this point. How you relate to others is very important, as we're about to see. But how you understand and relate to God is far more important. So we need to make sure that we build chapters 13 on top of chapters 1 through 12. That all of this blessed truth about who God is, who his son Jesus is, how we experience the new covenant promises today, how we ought to remain faithful, all of those things precede and are the foundation for our relationship with other people. Jesus even says it very simply when asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, the greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, it begins with a right understanding and a right relating to God. The reason I pause and make this clear right now is because I do think that there are, in our day, lots of well-meaning believers who put a lot of stock in human relationships such that they put the cart before the horse. If you don't get God right, though, all of your human relationships will either be shallow or they will just suffer. We've got to think rightly about this. To say it another way, if you get to know all the other sheep in the pen, but you don't know the voice of the shepherd, you will be in big trouble. I admit that I get nervous when I hear of churches that highlight or emphasize community more than Christ. Some of you might know what I mean. Community is a wonderful blessing and something that is worthy of pursuit and energy and engagement, as we're going to see here. But that ought never be pursued as opposed to our pursuit of Christ. 
And it's rare that I get this explicit. I, I want to be very cautious to ever be too judgmental towards other Christian churches and the practices that we see and observe in other Christian churches. There are a variety of methodologies that aren't worthy of casting judgment on at all, just differences. But if you ever find yourself looking for a good Christian church, and what you experience when you engage with one is a lot of talk about community, 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 and none about Christ, run. It is very common that I get people texting me, hey, I'm moving to a new place. Hey, Rich, I know you're a pastor and you might be able to help me find a good church. Hey, I know you're a Christian. I'm now a Christian. I want to find a new church. Sometimes people from our church move out of state and we try to help them find good churches where they go. And I'll get people send me, hey, check out this church. And they'll send me a website. And I'll read through the website and all this stuff about come with us, be in relationship, get to meet people, do life together. This is why we exist. And no mention of Jesus. No mention of salvation. No mention of God and of His glory being our highest priority. I want to warn you, brothers and sisters, make sure Hebrews 13 and passages like this don't stand in your mind separate from all the foundation work of relationship with the Lord and a right understanding of Him first. And when I say this, of course, I don't mean chronologically. Most people hear the gospel in relationship with others. And so their first experience with the truth of the gospel might begin with relationship with others before they have a relationship with the Lord. That's great. That's common and normal and wonderful. But there must come a point in which we see that we have to prioritize our relationship and understanding and trust in God over and above all the other things. The person who gets this wrong will be prone to care more about what people think than what God thinks in their lives. The person who gets this wrong will be more likely to have shallow relationships that never or almost never get to gospel truths. All your human relationships will be shaped by your relationship with God. You've got to get that right. I remember shortly after moving to Utah, we were becoming friends with a variety of different neighbors and some closer than others. And we, we shared the gospel very clearly and boldly with the people that we met. And I remember Laura interacting with one neighbor that was getting particularly close to her. Friends, the, the kids would play at the park and they would get together almost daily. And, and this Mormon friend getting to know Laura as a Christian uh, at one point said to her, I see the direction this relationship is going and I'm looking forward to being a friend with you. But just so we can have peace, I think we need some ground rules. Let's be friends together, but I don't want to talk about God or religion. And Laura, without a hesitation, said, no deal. Because my relationship with God is more important than my relationship with anyone. My kids and my husband, let alone you. And if I can't talk to a friend about the most important relationship in my life, that's not a real friendship. I can be respectful of you and honoring to you and dignifying of you and patient and gentle with you. But no, no deal. If it's friends with you apart from God, no deal. This is critical for us to acknowledge as believers. Our relationship with God has to be first. No Jesus, no deal. If you're not a believer today, you need to know this. We're, 
we care deeply about your heart and your life, and you are welcome to be in community with us in lots of ways. We would love for you to experience love amongst other believers and people in your life, and you're just getting to know some of this stuff. Praise be to God that you can do that. But you have to know, we care about your relationship with him. And if you ask us for advice on things, it's going to not take long before we quickly get down to, you know, none of that matters unless you get God right. We love you enough. We're going to try to make sure you understand who God is. How you understand and relate to God is the most important thing about you. And as you grow in that, this is what comes next. Look what he says. Let brotherly love continue. It's one of the most indelible marks of the Christian life. Jesus once said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That Christians, that the disciples of Jesus would love one another is an amazing gospel witness in our age. Now just as a reminder, when we see things like this, we should realize that this might not necessarily come naturally. That's why it's being instructed. It's not just, hey, you got this down. No worries. You're good. Whenever I do a wedding sermon, I make sure that the instruction is given in there at some point, the charge to the husband and to the wife, the new husband and wife, the bride and the groom. And I make sure that they hear, you need to love one another. And that's not a superfluous command like, well, duh, we're here. That's why we're here. It's given because the day's going to come where he's going to leave the toilet seat up and you're going to wonder how much he loves you. The day's going to come where she's going to forget something really important and you're going to wonder And you need to be reminded in those moments, let it continue. It has to continue. Loving your brother might come easy for you. You might be in a season where you're like, man, I just am really grateful for the body. You might be the kind of personality that just is an optimist. You just tend to love people. You don't really tend to have as much of a struggle in that particular category. Praise God for that. Could be, just, could be a particular kind of a spiritual gift. And the Lord just made it easy for you to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you were loved well all your upbringing by godly parents and Christians around you, so you have a surplus of good, deep, long-lasting love that you know how to dole out to others. That's different than the one who grew up in a non-Christian home and didn't feel love for years, maybe decades, and is now trying to experience receiving and giving that rightly and well. There may be those around us who as the relationship continues, need to be reminded and stirred up and encouraged to let brotherly love continue. We may need to be encouraged to this. In other words, if you ever experience with brothers and sisters in Christ a lack of perfect love, give it time. Invest energies. Press in that brotherly love would continue. Second verse, second instruction. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Interesting verse, isn't it? Let's start right out of the gate here. Hospitality to strangers. With all the encouragement to remain in community with each other. And that, that, that is part of this text. And indicative, something that's just represented as true throughout all of Hebrews is that you're together. It's the we. Occasionally there's instructions, but usually it's just, we're, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We are part of this community of faith. After all this encouragement to remain in community with other believers, we are here being encouraged to not forget the unbeliever. Well, the stranger is here, the unbeliever. 
Now, you might scrutinize and ask, wait a second, Rich, why do you think that this necessitates unbeliever? Why couldn't this just be the Christian missionary traveling through, show hospitality to the Christian stranger? Well, here's why. First, they're strangers, so you don't know them. You don't know their faith. You don't know what they believe. And it's made even clearer because some have entertained angels unawares. We'll get there in a second. But clearly, not only do you not know them, but no one else you know knows them because they're not even human. So these are those you don't know. But perhaps to me, the most compelling argument as to why this is unbelievers is because of the word use here. And if this is one of the places sometimes looking at the Greek might help a bit. In the first verse, it said, let brotherly love continue. Does, you know what brotherly love is in Greek? Probably some of you might know this. Philadelphia. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Philos, love. Delphia, that's for brother. Well, the same language is being used here for hospitality to strangers. That term, hospitality to strangers, is a single word, and it's phila, xenos. Phila is love, xenos is like strangers. You ever heard of xenophobia? That's, that's, that's when people use that term today, to be afraid of strangers, those who aren't like you. So this is the same language being used. So show love to brother, show love to stranger. And stranger, as distinct from brother here, I think makes it clear this is an unbelievers. Do not neglect to show hospitality, love to unbelievers in your lives. For thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So let's deal with the angels reference for a second. C.S. Lewis, in his introduction to the screw tape letters, said this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils or demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, he was talking specifically about demons. But I think that the same is true of angels. You can either just kind of forget or neglect that there's any reality to that level of, 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 uh, of creation, or you can obsess over it. I think that does happen for people. We need to be careful to not have that error and it is not uncommon for, to, for us to find passages just like this throughout the Bible that mention angels in such a nonchalant and passing manner as to simultaneously stoke our curiosity and leave us wholly unsatisfied in the topic altogether. You, you sense that when you see passages like this where something's said and then they just move on like, well, you know, and they keep going, whoa, 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 what, what, wait, what? This would be like a guy telling you about that one time he took this long hike up to the mountain. And on the way up, I passed the unicorn, and I kept going. And when I made it to the top, then I... Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. The, uni, the unicorn piece? What's that? Sometimes we find texts. We wish we could pause and go, can you unpack that for a second? You didn't, you didn't spend much more time on it here. But I don't think we need to take this as a promise that you and I should expect to interact with angels occasionally in the future or that we may have in the past. I actually don't think it necessitates that it's talking about our experience at all. Rather, it sounds like it could be merely mentioning the fact that some have interacted with angels in the past. And how would we know that? Because it's written in God's word. All the way back to Genesis chapter 18, Abraham, three angels show up. He doesn't know they're angels at first. Two of those angels will go on to his nephew Lot in Sodom. He doesn't know that they're angels Later in the Old Testament, Gideon will interact with an angel not knowing that it's an angel. Uh, Samson's father will interact with an angel not knowing that it's an angel. So I think that that's what's in mind here. If you were to look in the annals of Christian history, 
you will find some because they were being hospitable to people they don't even know. We have record of it because they were actually engaging with angels. Perhaps it would have been a little bit embarrassing if they didn't show hospitality to those strangers when they were, in fact, heavenly messengers. But the point here is very clear. Whether or not you and I will ever, ever interact in this life with an angel without knowing it, we are to live in such a hospitable way that the love of Christ in us would extend even to those we do not yet know. In my experience, I found some people are really good at showing hospitality to those in their circle, and others are really good at showing it to random strangers. But sometimes it takes great effort to be good at both. Open the doors to those that I know and love, my family, neighbors, and those people in my close circle, and those that are kind of outside of that. And so we may need extra energies offered. We need to be reminded, don't just love your brother. Love your brother. Let that continue. And also, don't neglect to show hospitality, love to the strangers in your lives. Jesus gives similar instruction to this hospitality to the stranger kind of language. He does this in Luke chapter 14. I want to read what he says here. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. As believers, we're to be hospitable. We're to show love even to those who may never reciprocate that love. Moves on to another instruction in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Now the author back in chapter 10 has already told us that this audience, this original audience, has in fact operated like this. They have cared for those who are in prison and have been mistreated physically. I also want to read that for you again so you see it. Back in chapter 10, verse 32 through 34. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That's the mistreatment, I think. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. So there he states it kind of matter-of-factly. I know this is the case with you. Recall that. Remember how you acted that way. That was good and right. Here he's encouraging it to continue to be true for them. He doesn't just say, hey, you got this down. I don't need to give you instruction. He encourages it to persist, to endure in this kind of care for those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. Since you also are in the body... I'll admit, commentators are split on exactly what's meant there, and I'm not certain either. It could mean because you're part of the body of Christ. You're in the church. So care for the believers who are struggling. And I do think that that's mostly what's in mind, is caring for the believers, the brothers and sisters who are uh, enduring persecution, because that's kind of the whole flow of the, the entire book up to this point. But it could also mean because you are physically still in the body. You understand pain. What would it be like if you were the one in prison? What would it be like if you were the one who was being beaten or mistreated? Since you are in the body, since you know that experience as well, care for those who are experiencing the hardships. And either way, whether it's church or physical body, it's really clear to us the instruction here is 
care for others when they're enduring this suffering. Do not abandon them to their fate in these circumstances. He continues in verse 4 and yet another instruction. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You and I live in a day where all do not honor marriage. In fact, they often don't honor what God has said the design for man and woman should be at all. And I'm sure you're well aware that this is the kind of world that we live in. But Paul goes on in another place in 1 Timothy chapter 4 to warn us of false teachers who will teach false doctrine and even forbid marriage. There's some parallels to this text and that one that I think makes it possible that the instruction given here has the same idea in mind. That people could dishonor marriage both by engaging in sexual immorality and by others forbidding marriage altogether. I think both of those things could be in mind. That might be why it starts with let marriage, bed be, held in, marriage be held in honor among all. And the second thing that's connected to that, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. I think that's probably what he means here. Nevertheless, we can be quite certain of this, that as the world sprints further down the path of sexual perversion, Christians must be all the more committed to purity within their marriages. This is a constant warning throughout the Old and the New Testament. The New Testament hammers this for us on repeat. That the world will get sexuality wrong. But we as believers are to hold the line on it and not to wiggle one tiny bit. God is so good to us in this. It is only through the Lord that our sexual immorality, that our fornication, that our adultery can be forgiven and dealt with in Christ that we may not have that judgment follow us into eternity. Praise be to God. He is the only solution to any and all of these things. And we are encouraged as the church to remain pure in our marriages. I want you to notice something that this verse points out, though. It shows us that it is a good thing for all to honor marriage. Let marriage be held in honor among all. It's not just those who are married. Well, if you're married, you know, you you honor marriage. It doesn't matter if anyone else does. All, at the very least, all believers. And perhaps it could be meaning all people to include non-believers. It's unclear exactly which is in mind. And so you might suspect commentators are split on exactly how far to extend the all. But I have heard people challenge before. Why does it matter if the world acknowledges God's plan for marriage? Because he said so. That's why. Because the Lord has established something that is good and right and pure and true. And when even non-believers operate according to that, it is better for them. I remember people challenging this, especially back in uh, the Obergefell decision days. I think it was June of 2015. When the Supreme Court made a decision in the Obergefell case that many saw as kind of that start, that, that final moment that the United States government was sanctifying and sanctioning homosexual marriage, so-called. And it was from that point forward that people have been looking at this whole paradigm and wondering, how is it that Christians should deal with this in the world? Should we just go, whatever, that's just the way the world views marriage? 
Or ought we to proclaim and preach and constantly hold to? No, the marriage bed must be held in honor among us all and not in dishonor. I think this text makes it clear for us. We are not to comply with the worldly versions of civil union, of marriage. We are to only acknowledge that marriage can be between one man, one woman, and that that marriage bed should be kept undefiled. No sexual immorality. I I think that literally can include everything from lust of the eyes, pornography, clearly adultery, fornication, any type of sex outside of marriage, and certainly any type of sex that would not be sanctioned by our Lord. One man, one woman in the bonds of marriage. When we all do not honor marriage, we will find ourselves under God's righteous judgment. And here's what I mean. Believers who hold to what God says marriage is and live in and around a culture that is sprinting in the opposite direction, celebrating perversion, will certainly become collateral damage in the judgment of God. You and I will not benefit from the fact that we live around people who hate God's view of marriage. That's what I'm saying. Whatever happens as a result of our country's exaltation of perverted views of sexuality, that will be bad for us. That will be negative for us. That will come down the pipeline to us. And even though we have been forgiven of our sins, we've been seated uh, in Christ in the heavenly places, we have been secured in Him in that, you and I are not immune to the types of things that will happen at this country because our world has gone crazy. We will feel it regularly. Some of you have already. We are to let marriage be held in honor among all. If I were to pick this up and drop it back on the church 40, 50 years ago, what I would point to is the church's willingness to go along with the worldly lines about divorce. And this is a problem. That Christians did not hold the marriage bed in honor among all. Hold their men accountable to being godly husbands. Hold their women accountable to being godly wives. And hold to what the Bible says about unity and love and commitment and marriage. In other words, we let this institution fail inside of the walls of the church in many ways long before that godless advance came on our culture. You and I must hold marriage in honor as believers. Verse 5, yet another instruction. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Love of money. As we are warned elsewhere in the New Testament, it is not money itself or the use of it that is evil, but the love of it. You see that? Keep your life free from love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10 repeats the same idea. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Money is nothing. It's just stuff. But the love of it is gangrenous to the heart of a believer. Jesus even says you cannot have two masters that you serve. You cannot love both God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. One will rule, and you will be a slave to it. Do we make ourselves a slave to God or a slave to money? 
It's interesting that, again, if you look at the Greek word, the word love there is philos. Again, it's the same word. So we've already seen in this passage, love your brothers. Love the strangers. Do not love money. All right here inside of five verses. That word for love is shown up three different times. Don't love money. Don't let it occupy a position of power in your life. Don't let it sit at the seat of affection or undue attention. This is the kind of thing that in the New Testament is most particularly pointed at the rich. Jesus even says that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because the rich young ruler to whom he is speaking was unwilling to give up all he had because he had much. This is a regular warning throughout the New Testament to think rightly about money. But there are two times when money tends to be the most on the mind, when it becomes likely for it to take a center stage where it ought not to be. And that can be when there is either a great surplus or a great deficit. The person who has much money is thinking about where he or she ought to put it. And the person who has no money is looking to where he or she may find it. And so, it shouldn't be surprising that even verses in the Old Testament tell us that we should aim for the middle road. Pray that we don't get too much or too little. It says it this way in Proverbs 30, 8 through 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. See that? Pray not for too much, not for too little. Lord, give me enough. Help me be faithful with whatever you give me and to not let my mind and my heart fall in love with money or the pursuit of it. Love people, not things. I actually think that it is likely that the reason he's bringing this up is because he has little money in mind as much as much money in mind. And the reason I think this is because he's already told us that we have a better possession in heaven than we have today. Here, he says, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. So in other words, I think what's in mind is the plundering of possessions, the loss of possessions that might induce a person to start focusing on it and to not be content with what is left for them. If you and I were to lose everything that we had, all of our material possessions in a single day, how would we handle it as a Christian? You'd have to begin by acknowledging that you have not lost the most important thing. And that's why this is the encouragement given. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a direct citation from Joshua chapter 1. He's getting ready to take over the promised land. God gives him this incredible quote. He says, just like I was with Moses... I will never leave you nor forsake you. No matter what happens, I'm there. If you lose in battle, I'm with you. If you die, I will be there. And if you win, I'll be at your side. This is such a great and mighty promise. And this author picks up that message given to Joshua and applies it to all believers. And that's a beautiful thing. That is why we are to be content with what we have. 
That is why we are, not, we are to keep our life free from the love of money. That, that, that's why. You don't need to focus on that. You have something better. You have in your possession the greatest treasure in all existence. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. Your money will leave you and forsake you. Your stuff may leave you and forsake you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're not a believer today, if you're not a Christian, you need to know you have in your sins turned from God. You may say, like, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure I've ever like turned from God. You have if you have not loved and treasured him more than all things. And this is not just true of you that we would stand and go, you're the sinner who does this. All of us, this is true of. No one is righteous. No, not one. None of us have treasured and honored God as worthy of all of this praise, as he says here. None of us have given him the, the worth that he is due, the worship and the praise that he is due. And all of us are under his righteous judgment. We have sought his stuff rather than him. We have looked to the things of this world more than him. And the gospel is that God sends his only son to live perfectly. And he bore the punishment for sins due to all of us who did not love God with the love that he deserves. And the way that we are to have access to Jesus is by repenting of our sins, turning from all the other things, and seeing him as greater in value, greater to be treasured. Jesus once explained that turn in this way. He said that the kingdom of God is like a man who found a great treasure in a field and he went and he sold all that he had and joyfully went and bought this property because he knew that he was about to receive the greatest treasure that exists. This is the call to repentance and faith in Jesus. When Christians tell you you need to turn from the ways of the world, you need to turn from the sins of your life that would have led you to death and separation from God forever in hell, you need to repent of that and turn to him. We are saying, see him as the greatest treasure. See him as worthy of more than all of this. Jesus even says it's better than your relationships. I've come to bring not peace, but a sword. You may have to give up on your relationships, the people in your life that you love, to love Jesus. You may need to give up your stuff, your land, your property, your life to follow him. And he says, that's the charge. If you're not a believer today, you need to do that. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you need to learn and understand what that means a bit more, talk to somebody today. You cry out to God in prayer and say, Lord, reveal, show me this. Find another Christian, talk to him or her, and she will tell you how to be saved. Believe on him. Get to know who he is. And see that he is the greatest treasure. Not just one more thing to pile on. Well, I got all these good things. Let me just put them on here too. No. Unload what you have and run to him. The author here is not quite finished with his very practical instructions. He's going to continue on. He's going to even go on to the things we'll cover next week and the week beyond. He's going to encourage his audience to imitate the righteous living of their spiritual leaders. He's going to encourage them to reject false doctrine. He'll even tell them to pray for their fellow believers. So he's not done with the instruction that's about to be given here. And we're going to see more of those in the upcoming weeks. But I do want you to see something here before we close. This list might seem a bit underwhelming. 
This list is um, almost odd. It seems like we just jump from random topic to random topic. There's almost no tie. When I write sermons, I do things in a a color-coded way. If you guys didn't know I was that type A. My wife's more type A, which makes me feel like I'm not, but I still am. And I use this orange color when I'm ever like, don't forget to transition so that I don't leave everyone behind on the next thing. And I was trying to find little transitions. Like, well, what's, well, how can I tie together the, the prison and the marriage? <laughs> I didn't want to do that wrongly. <laughs> and it was hard because it seemed like it was random. But something that's really important for us to do when we read the Bible is zoom out for a second and ask yourself the question, why is this here now? You and I know and can go to a hundred passages of the Bible to see that you should love your brother or sister in the faith. Let brotherly love continue. You can go to a hundred passages for that. Why would he put that here now? Why would he remind us to remain pure sexually and marriage bed undefiled now? Why would he remind us to care for those in prison and mistreated now? Money stuff now. Hospitality to strangers here. Why? I want to consider perhaps the most surprising thing about the seemingly mundane list is the context of it. Let's look at verse 6 and I'll tell you what I mean. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He's quoting a whole bunch of stuff in the Old Testament, particularly Psalm 118. I want you to remember with me the whole point of this book. It's been telling true things you need to know and trust about Jesus and you need to cling to and you need to remain faithful. Why? Because you're going to endure hardship. It is coming and it is not avoidable. You are looking down the barrel of the gun that is Christian persecution. That's what he's telling his audience. Not merely natural disasters or illness or the general hardships of human life, they are going to face attacks from the world around them on the basis of their Christian faith. That's why it says, what can man do to me? That's what he draws on. What can man do to me? He tells them, remember just here, prison is coming for some of the people in your midst. Physical mistreatment is coming for some of those in your midst. The plundering of your property as it already has been and you should expect again in the future. Here's the point. Even though things are going to get inevitably worse for these Christians, they are being told to continue doing exactly what Christians are to do. All the time. This is our manual for life as believers. And there's not this special portion that we go to when we face hardships. It's not as though the rules of the game change. How you ought to live must be different now that persecution's coming. Oh no, persecution, they're at the door. Break glass, pull out that closed portion of scripture that applies only to us now in the days of persecution. There's no panic button for the Christian. Ha, 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 boom, and everything changes. There's no C Appendix B when tragedy strikes. You say it this way. What are Christians supposed to do all the time? What are you supposed to do when things are peaceful, generally, when you're not under attack, there's not any major hostilities against the Christian uh, life? What should you do? Love brother, love neighbor, care for those who are suffering, hold the marriage bed in high honor, 
Don't love your money. Be generous. And what are you to do when the enemy is at the gates, the city is being attacked, Christians are being dragged to the Colosseums, to prisons, beaten in the streets? What are you to do then? Love your brother. Love your neighbor. Care for those who are being mistreated. Care for marriage and think rightly about purity. And don't love money. Be content with what you have. I want you to consider for a moment all these instructions. Once again, I'm just going to read through what he said here. Um, think about them in light of what these people are preparing to, to experience. And I'm just going to pause and say, and the reason I want you to listen carefully to this is because I think, as we said before, I'm open to being wrong. I hope that we have blessing ahead and not cursing on our country. But I think we're heading towards a time where I, I expect my kids to face a worse persecution and hardship than I've ever experienced in my lifetime. I expect that. And I think that one of my charges as a Christian pastor is to prepare my church for suffering in the name of Jesus. There are a few greater witnesses than persisting in doing these things when trials come. So consider these instructions he just gave again in this light. Even though personal distress is sure to come, remember it ought not be every man for himself. Instead, let brotherly love continue. As hostility increases, even though it may seem far safer for you to lock your doors, close everyone out, not allow yourself to be put in any sort of vulnerable position regarding outsiders, instead, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. While some might let the pressure get to them in such a way, they'll seek some way to medicate against that kind of stress. But they might not even abandon their responsibilities to family, spouses, even marital purity. Let marriage be held in honor by all. Stay pure. While your property may be plundered, seized, or even extorted away from you, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Brothers and sisters, we do need to be reminded by this. I talk to believers all the time who are watching the signs of the times, wondering how we are to prepare for the storm clouds we see gathering on the horizon. And the answer this author gives us, remain faithful. Do what Christians do. There is a stability that is needed amongst believers, a maturity where we take our roots and, and let them drive deep down into the soils of the Word of God, drawing on rivers of living water so that when the crazy times come, we stand firm. We continue to do what believers always did. And what a great witness that will be to the world. We've got to do what the Bible commands, no matter how hard things get. So brothers and sisters, you need to find one another, get in community with one another and love each other and continue to persist in that even when it's hard. Even when it feels like it's difficult to love somebody or you're not feeling that love from another, press in. Let brotherly love continue. Let it go. You prompt it. Teach me, Lord. Grow me in this. Be mindful of the non-believers in your lives. Get to know your neighbors. Get to know your coworkers. Christians should be inviting people in for dinner more than anybody else. We should be like, oh, you're Christians. You're those dinner inviting people. 
You're always eating with all these other people. Do that all the time with people. And yes, even strangers. Seek the opportunity that somebody you don't even know, that you're ready, you're prepared to invite them on in and sacrifice some of what you have to give to others that will never be able to give anything back to you. No reciprocation. Honor marriage. Encourage one another in faithfulness and in purity. Even if you're not, not uh, married, and maybe, maybe uh, don't expect that you will be in the future, honor marriage. Look to your brothers and sisters who are and, and hold that up with them. Share with them. Warn and guard against anything that will seek to undermine a God-honoring view of marriage. And no matter what the world says, do not teach your kids otherwise. Teach them purity in marriage and sexuality. Be content. Don't love money. Invest what you have in eternal things. Some people are going to have a lot of money and they're going to lose it. Others may have less and they may still lose it. But you're not to let money become the object of your affection, of your attention. Don't let this time make you into a miser. And we as believers are to do all these things. I'm going to use, I'm going to use the author here, his words, back in chapter 10 in conclusion. And do all these things all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us pray. Lord, we love and trust you and your word, and it is timely for us. The great thing about not needing to know exactly what's coming in our future is we must do the same list, whether we will be blessed as a nation or cursed as a nation. So Father, help us to commit to these things. Help us to just stick true to them. Lord, thank you for the brothers and sisters in our lives that have been great models of all of this. Help us to, to, to grow in each of these areas. Father, help us to be the kind of people that live in this way so that not only our fellow brothers and sisters encouraged to it, but non-believers look and say, these Christians are different. And they take their words seriously. Father, help us to show that love for you, that it would grow our hearts closer to you, and that we may live in right relationship with those around us. And we ask for your help in this as we pray in Jesus' good name. Amen.